Hello and welcome back to Life Hacks from Dead People. I'm your host, Stephanie Ramage. This week, our theme is Don't Follow the Crowd, which is a little bit misleading because the book that we're reviewing is Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. And so much of the book is really about following the crowd. It's about growing up and growing into yourself, growing into the, the adult that you're destined to be. Um, Nick Hornby writes this in an autobiographical way. In fact, it's, it's, it's pretty much a journal. Um, and it's a journal with milestones created by soccer events, soccer matches. In fact, at the beginning of each section, he'll list uh, a date and a match. For example, Arsenal versus Manchester City, April 10th, 75. Actually, I think in the British way of putting that, that would be October 4th, 1975. So it's a story about how a young man uses the sport to kind of navigate growing up and navigate life and and how it provides him with a lot of comfort after the divorce of his parents even though later on he kind of talks about that a little bit and he says you know I don't I don't think soccer was really standing in for a family it obviously didn't give me things that a family would have given me but it certainly gave a shape to his life so although our theme is don't follow the crowd in in many ways this book is about following the crowd so life hacks from dead people is really about things we learn from people who've died or from their deaths. And there are certainly a lot of deaths mentioned in Fever Pitch. In fact, as an American who's not as familiar with soccer, the death toll at some of the soccer games from the 1960s into the 1980s, right up to the end of the 1980s, were just astonishing to me, astonishing. And to help me um, navigate all this, I have a very special guest today, my son, Charlie Fisher. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) Charlie is recuperating from surgery on his knee, in fact, and so... um, Not from soccer. Not from soccer, (laughs) to make that clear. But when Charlie was growing up, soccer was a really important activity for him. And one that he shared with his dad. His dad was also a soccer enthusiast. Mm -hmm. And I became a soccer enthusiast. I remember we were just talking about how 2006 was such an important year for us. Mm -hmm. Charlie was 10 that year. It was the World Cup, the famous World Cup with um, Zidane and the headbutt heard round the world. (laughs) And, you know, we still have really clear memories of that. So I'm going to start out... Um, by giving you Nick Hornby's own, his sort of summary of what this book is about. And then I'm going to talk to Charlie a little bit about how this is kind of a male view of life and and how a sport can can really give you some some shape to your life. Um, So in the foreword, Nick Hornby writes this, Fever Pitch is an attempt to gain some kind of an angle on my obsession. Why has the relationship that began as a schoolboy crush endured for nearly a quarter of a century, longer than any other relationship I have made of my own free will? 
And why has this affinity managed to survive my periodic feelings of indifference, sorrow, and very real hatred? The book is also, in part, an exploration of some of the meanings that football seems to contain for many of us. It became quite clear to me that my devotion says things about my own character and personal history, but the way the game is consumed seems to offer all sorts of information about our society and culture. He goes on to say, finally, Fever Pitch is about being a fan. I've read books written by people who obviously love football, but that's a different thing entirely. And I have read books written, for want of a better word, by hooligans, but at least 95% of the millions who watch games every year have never hit anyone in their lives. So this is for the rest of us and for anyone who has wondered what it might be like to be this way. While the details here are unique to me, I hope that they will strike a chord with anyone who's ever found themselves drifting off in the middle of a workday or a film or a conversation towards a left foot volley into a top right hand corner 10 or 15 or 25 years ago. So Charlie, talk to me a little bit about the role that soccer played for you in your formative years. Yeah, well, I'll say an, an interesting contrast. He, uh, Nick Hornsby was always uh, a fan. When I was young, I mean, it was something my dad just signed me up for, and, uh, and I just played, and I liked playing soccer. But early on, definitely, I didn't really care about being a fan at all. I mean, one, because we live in America, there's, like, the teams seem unfamiliar. Atlanta didn't have a team at the time. And... Um, so I just liked it as a player, but I do, I mean, eventually I began liking it, but I remember even from, because he, Nick Hornby, talks, uh, talks about from the age of like six going to games and stuff. And I mean, I do remember watching, maybe not soccer, but plenty of sporting events. And I mean, the way that you care about it as a fan, like I was almost more, pat- if, you know, if I was watching a Falcons game as a six-year-old, I was almost more invested passionately, like wanting them to win than maybe even my own game on the field. I mean, even playing sometimes, I'm sure I was like brought to tears by a loss. But <laughs> but um, I don't know. And I mean, I wouldn't say soccer is different from other team sports, and it's uh, that it gives you like a a social outlet for sure. But I mean, uh, otherwise, as a I mean, as a player, I think that was, like, the biggest thing to me. It was just fun uh, socially. And then, I mean, winning is fun, too, and the, playing the game itself. As a fan, I think what's exciting is just the... For me, what's been exciting is just, like, you know, sort of seeing the stories of it unfold, uh, like the path of a certain player uh, or, a, or a certain country. If we're talking, like, international. But I think for him, it was a lot more... Uh, I mean, it was to a whole other level of, uh, he, he was constantly, as, as this whole book is, is sort of, like you said, a parallel between his life and the game. So he kind of would use it to reflect, it seemed like. Right. Right. Um, so what's interesting is when you were 10, mm-hmm. there was the 2006 yeah. World Cup, which was a big, big deal to both of us and, yeah. and actually reached out and got the interest of a lot of people who were not even soccer fans because of what happened with Zidane in the final yeah in Fever Pitch 
uh, Nick Hornby looks back to 1968 when he would have been about the same age as you. He was nine or ten years old then. And soccer became important to him then because it provided something meaningful or at least something that you could focus on to do with his dad post-divorce. And so um, he talks about something. It's so true. You know, parents struggle so much to find something to do with their kids. And so his dad kept trying to get him interested in soccer, and he was never that interested interested in it. And then finally, one day he said, yes, you know, I'll go to the match. And he writes this, and this is just fantastic because it's so true. Um, he writes, I was equally suspicious of rugby matches and cricket matches and boat trips and days out to Silverstone and Longleat. I didn't want to do anything at all. None of this was intended to punish my father for his absence. I really thought that I would be happy to go anywhere with him apart from every single place he could think of. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a funny little bit. I like that. Uh... Your your tenth birthday in uh-huh. two thousand six was when I think I got you um, all of the FIFA matches the the set, the set of, of uh, CDs of DVDs, of DVDs yeah. sorry the set of DVDs it might have even been it might have been a little bit later because well I guess yeah no I guess you're right it was after it was after the two thousand six World Cup before the two thousand ten so yeah. I think some of them you still haven't watched am I right you, some I you know this is making me want to pull them out and watch them because I actually just uh, I I have them here I just uh, pulled them out the other day but yeah no I still haven't watched all of them it was a, a good series I mean of course some of the you know the the uh, footage of you know the really early World Cups isn't necessarily the best or the most That's exciting true. but yes, that is <laughs> but, true yeah. Yeah, I some uh, of some of the black but, and white yeah. versions are. Yeah, but I certainly enjoyed that, and I mean that's like that's something you know. I don't think I ever felt uh, dragged along or into soccer by like my dad or uh, by you, but I mean, well, you know, I mean, but like I said, it, you know, he did just sign me up, and it was something that I just happened to take to, and I mean, like he said, he didn't really want to be into it at first, but then it uh, captured his attention, and and so he became part of the crowd. Right. <laughs> So as your mom, you may recall that I actually got in trouble at one of your soccer matches. Do you remember this? No, I don't. <laughs> okay. Sometimes if you were really on a long run down down the pitch, yeah. I would run along with you down the <laughs> side of the field and yeah. I was yelling at you. And anyway, apparently I almost um, knocked this lady over who was in her folding chair because <laughs> I was so excited because you were about yeah. to score. And the ref had a word with me, and it really just made me that much angrier, if you want to know the truth. Right, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I thought, it's ridiculous. You know, why would you penalize my son's team when I'm the idiot mom <laughs> right, who's causing yeah. these problems? Yeah. But um, there's Some a... Classic rec soccer. <laughs> <laughs> the classic rec soccer, yes. Yeah. But there's quite a bit in Fever Pitch about Nick Hornby, his his relationship with his family. Yeah. And I think this is just lovely. This bit that he kind of dedicates almost to his mom, certainly focuses on his mom. It's a section called My Mom and Charlie George. And Charlie George was a huge soccer hero at the time. So let me just read this bit. Now that I think about it, my mother's part in all this was actually quite mysterious. 
She didn't like me spending my money on Led Zeppelin records, understandably, or on cinema tickets, and she didn't even seem that keen on me buying books. And yet somehow it was okay for me to travel to London or Derby or Southampton on an almost weekly basis and take my chances with any group of nutters that I happened upon. She's never discouraged my mania for football. In fact, it was she who bought my tickets for the Reading Cup tie, driving down a frozen snow-covered A4 and queuing up while I was at school. And some eight years later, I came home to find on our dining room table an impossibly elusive ticket for the West Ham Arsenal Cup final that she bought for 20 quid money she didn't really have from a man at work. Well, yes, of course, it was something to do with masculinity, but I don't think that her usually tacit, occasionally active football support was supposed to be for my benefit. It was for hers. On Saturdays, it seemed to me now, we enacted a weird little parody of a sitcom married couple. She would take me down to the station. I'd go on the train up to London, do my man stuff, and ring her from the four-court call box when I got back for a lift home. She would then put my tea on the table, and I ate while I talked about my day, and sweetly, she would ask questions about a subject that she didn't know much about, but tried to take an interest in anyway, for my sake. If things had not gone well, she would tiptoe around them. On a good day, my satisfaction would fill the living room. In Maidenhead, this was exactly what happened from Monday to Friday, every single weekday evening. The only difference was that in our house, we didn't get around to it until the weekend. There is, I know, an argument which says that acting out the role of one's father with one's mother isn't necessarily the best way of ensuring a psychic health in later mm -hmm. years. But then we all do it at some time or another, chaps, don't we? <laughs> do you? Have you ever yes, stood in for your dad um, to basically keep me happy or make life seem more normal? And um, I mean... Never overtly. I, I mean, maybe there is some small things kind of like that. Because, I mean, it's not like, you know, that's him looking back on it. Saying, I'm sure he didn't think of it like that as he was a kid. But, um, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say because nothing comes to mind. Because I, I don't think it was ever, you know, intentional or on purpose. Because, you know, I don't know. I feel like you can... <laughs> I don't know. Because I feel like you're strong. You can handle yourself. But also because, like it would be out of just like or organically how like a home life works like maybe um I don't know I don't know I can't think I mean do you think of any time specifically <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I think there were times especially you know there were times obviously especially in the early years when I wasn't dating anybody right. when you know, you of course were always the focus of my life regardless. Right, and right. I think the guys I dated were well aware of that too. And I would make it explicit. I would say it, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, is, yeah. Right. So if I was dating someone, I had a little bit more balance, I think, along those lines. If not, yeah. then, you know, yes, you were my companion. But you yeah. were often my companion anyway. We enjoyed... I think for a while there, we enjoyed yeah. a lot of the same stuff and we would end up going to events and things together because, yeah. you know, you were my pal in my... Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say that it was like, I mean, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, yeah, I was your like companion, but I mean, it it still fell into, I mean, like you said, it's not like you just didn't have a dating life, it just you weren't dating. So like, so I think it was, I'm I'm sure there were like, 
uh, I'm putting this in quotes, like man of the house moments, but I think it was generally, you're right, more like a pal type companion, I guess, yeah. But. Welcome back to part two of our review of Fever Pitch on life hacks from dead people. I am your host, Stephanie Ramage, and my very special guest today is my son, Charlie Fisher. Hello again. So we're moving on a little bit here in Fever Pitch, and I want to talk about something that I think that Nick Hornby really nails better than any other writer. And I can say that categorically. I've read, I think I've read everything he's ever written. Mm -hmm. And in every book, he manages to write about this in a way that is profoundly visceral. I mean, he really gets it. And that is um, the self-hatred of the suburbanite. Um, suburbanites are kind of betwixt and between, you know, they, they are not, they are not the people that live downtown in the big cities. Um, so they don't really have that kind of, uh, toughened, slick carapace and they're not rural. So they don't have the, you know, I really don't give a rat's ass that you get from truly, uh, rural people. And I can, I can talk about both of these. I've been both of these and, um, and now I'm, I'm more of a suburbanite. I live, some people would consider it almost in the city of Atlanta, but, but it's, yeah. it's not part of the city. It's its own little city. But yet it's um, within the perimeter. It's certainly yes. within the perimeter. And it's a sub suburb. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe to some extent, although it's, it's very, very different in terms of the, of the terrain and in terms of the environment, but yeah. um, maybe a good way to understand Decatur's relationship to Atlanta is to think about maybe the city of Westminster's relationship to London. Right. Atlanta yeah, seems yeah. like it's all around you. It's really not. It's to yeah. the west. Yeah. But, but you, certainly, you certainly are sort of immersed in yeah. all the Atlantaness. And you're inside the perimeter, which in Atlanta is a big distinction. <laughs> yeah. You know, keeping in mind, and I think the English realized this a long time ago, anytime you build any kind of perimeter wall, beltway, anything that divides, you're going to also introduce a scale of what's better and hipper and cooler yeah. when you do that, depending on which side of that you fall on. So, um, you know, nonetheless, to be just outside a city, not really part of the city, it counts as being suburban. And there is sort of a self-hatred that comes with that. To help you understand that, there's no better way than to read what, what Hornby has written about this. It's in a section called Islington Boy. Maybe that's Islington Boy. I probably should have checked on my British pronunciation before I started that. Charlie is going to helpfully look it up. Um, but here's, here's what he writes about that. And he's, um, the, the little date line here is Reading versus Arsenal, 5272. The white south of England, middle-class Englishman. So I'm going to redo that for just a second. The white south of England, middle-class Englishman and woman is the most rootless creature on earth. We would rather belong to any other community in the world. Yorkshiremen, Lancastrians, Scots, the Irish, blacks, the rich, the poor, even Americans and Australians 
have something they can sit in pubs and bars and weep about, songs to sing, things they can grab for and squeeze hard when they feel like it. But we have nothing, or at least nothing we want. Hence the phenomenon of mock belonging, whereby past and backgrounds are manufactured and massaged in order to provide some kind of acceptable cultural identity. I'm just going to repeat a term that he uses that is really cool, mock belonging. Mm-hmm. So it's made up. It's, it's a made up um, connection. connection, a made up origin. You know, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Who was it that's saying, I want to be black? The title says it all, and everybody has met people who really do. In the mid-70s, young, intelligent, and otherwise self-aware white men and women in London began to adopt a Jamaican patois that, frankly, didn't suit them at all. How we all wished we came from the Chicago projects, or the Kingston ghettos, or the mean streets of North London or Glasgow. All those H-dropping, vowel-mangling punk rockers with a public school education. All those Hampshire girls with grandparents in Liverpool or Brum. All those Pogues fans from Herefordshire. Herefordshire. (laughs) Um, Singing Irish rebel songs. All those Europhiles who will tell you that though their mothers live in Reigate, their sensibilities reside in Rome. Ever since I've been old enough to understand what it means to be suburban, I've wanted to come from somewhere else, (laughs) preferably North London. So Charlie, suburbanite boy, (laughs) have you ever had that feeling? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I had it all the time growing up, but not, I don't think it really was in relation to Decatur specifically, because for me it was more, and I think this is really... I mean, I'm not saying what he says isn't true. I, there's definitely truth to that. Uh, but you can probably guess this is leading to, you know, him falling in love with Arsenal because he, like, had a, a thing, you know. A, About I, the city, the inner city, yeah. right, and Arsenal yeah. was part of that scene. Exactly. Sure. But I think he still would have been looking for some type of team. Because I, I remember, at least for me as a kid, it was more like I wanted to be from, you know, like... Uh, I would tell people I was from like New Zealand or Iceland or <laughs> Austria, and they would buy it. <laughs> I remember this. Yeah, I would I'm do trying that to think of time. where you would tell. There was something. Well, you in went sixth through. grade, it lasted all the way all year. That it was Iceland, and fifth grade, it was New Zealand. I, I gave it up after that, but I remember but, Iceland. But, yeah, literally, the school like did this like uh, thing about international students, and they put like an Icelandic flag like up in the library and stuff. And then to represent you, <laughs> yeah, to represent me. They didn't. Right. They had pictures of other kids. There wasn't a picture <laughs> of me, but there was a flag up on the wall. And I, yeah, I remember my social studies teacher asking me on like the last day of school if I was really from Iceland. I guess somebody had ratted me out, and I was like, no, <laughs> and he was disappointed. But <laughs> it was funny it was, it because was fun. I had no clue what was going on. Right. And one of your <laughs> yeah. teachers said to me, "You know, when I look at you, I can really see your Viking heritage." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had no idea. You know, I was thinking, well, yeah. the Vikings are really tall. Where's this coming from? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, when somebody said, "Oh, you know, we put an Icelandic flag up for <laughs> yeah. Charlie," I was very surprised because clearly, <laughs> yeah. you know, we don't come from Iceland. No. In fact, I don't think anyone in no, our family comes from Iceland. No, so. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think it was, uh, I don't know, though, for me, I always felt like it was, uh, I don't know, I guess because, like, uh, my dad did go to college for 
anthropology and I was always curious. I didn't know what that was, but I think I just liked learning about different people. I don't know if I ever, and I did want to be from different places. Like I, I definitely thought it'd be cool to be from the country or from like a tougher part of the city, but it's how we were saying about Decatur before. It's such a middle, it's not quite the suburbs and it's not quite the city that I think that balance actually, uh, leveled that out some where I didn't feel like I needed to be from like uh, a more it's it since Decatur was in between and it had that contradiction that actually gave it some like identity kind right, of so right but well yeah but yeah we know it's okay so we're actually recording this near Athens yeah and I went to school at the University of Georgia and Charlie mm-hmm. lives here with his girlfriend and um when I was in university at the University of Georgia, mm-hmm. um, it was the mid 1980s, mm-hmm. and so there was just an absolute epidemic of people pretending to be British. Really? And wow. Some, yeah, and <laughs> some funny. some of the British accents were astoundingly bad. Um, just you know, <laughs> to bet. the point yeah. that standing anywhere near one of these people at a party was social death because <laughs> it was not at all even remotely believable. Yeah, it was as if they had somehow gotten the idea of the English accent from watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Bang. <laughs> right, or yeah. Mary Poppins. Yeah. It was it was really strange. That's you know, hilarious. or just bits of um or maybe they were watching interviews on MTV because yeah. some of them tried hard to be really cockney. Yeah, okay. Yeah, to the extent yeah. that it didn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was so much of that going on, in fact. That one day when I actually met an English guy oh, in wow. downtown Athens, I did not believe him. <laughs> I tore into him and oh made total fun of him for pretending to be oh, British. Wow. <laughs> and um, and then much to my dismay, he started producing all of this documentation that he had on his person. Proving, yeah. He was an exchange student. Wow. And oh, man. right. But you know, I was sure that I had sniffed <laughs> him out by God. I smoked out that oh, fake. Geez. Man, and, I'm glad yeah. nobody uh, tried me like that in middle school about <laughs> about Iceland. Because <laughs> really nobody ever well, had any really. But um But how many people speak Icelandic? You right, could exactly, have gotten away yeah. with it, yeah. probably. Yeah, probably. Right? Probably. So anyway, there's Nick Hornby writes a really hilarious little passage about his own attempt to pass as someone from the, the hard streets of inner city London. And so he's been pretending to bring you up to speed on this. He's been he's been in line with this family who support a soccer club that's closer to his home in Maidenhead. He, of course, has become besotted with Arsenal. Um, and this this whole book is pretty much a love letter to Arsenal. Um, but he, he is pretending to be this hardened inner-city Londoner. And then he says, It was when they asked me about schools that it all went terribly wrong. They'd heard about London comprehensives and wanted to know whether it was all true. And for what seemed like hours, I weaved an elaborate fantasy based on the exploits of the half dozen small time thugs at the grammar. I can only presume that I had managed to convince myself and that by this stage, my town had in my head transmuted into a North London village somewhere between Holloway and Islington. Because 
When the father asked where I lived, I told him the truth. Maidenhead, the father repeated, incredulous. Maidenhead? But that's four miles down the road. Nearer ten, I replied, but he seemed unconvinced that the extra six miles made much difference, and I could see his point. I was blushing. Then he finished me off. You shouldn't be supporting Arsenal this afternoon, he said. You should be supporting your local team. It was the most humiliating moment of my teenage years. A complete, elaborate, and perfectly imagined world came crashing down around me and fell in chunks at my feet. I wanted Arsenal to avenge me, to beat the third division team and their pedantic, dull-witted fans into a pulp. But we won, two to one, with a second half Pat Rice deflection, and at the end of the game, the reading father ruffled my hair and told me that at least it wouldn't take me long to get home. <laughs> <clears throat> it didn't stop me, though, and it only took a couple of weeks to rebuild the London borough of Maidenhead. But I made sure that the next time I went to an away game, it was precisely that, far away, where people might believe that my Thames Valley hometown had its own tube station and West Indian community and terrible, insoluble social problems. Welcome back to Life Hacks from Dead People. I'm your host, Stephanie Ramage, with my special guest, my son, Charlie Fisher. Hey, and I was just thinking that that last passage you read reminded me that I guess really that uh, the the stuff with like saying I was from New Zealand and Iceland and stuff, that actually really did tie into soccer because a big part of my fascination of you know other parts of the world was through soccer because it's big in so many other places. But like those specifically because I guess I did have a little bit of this almost sort of like the suburbanite thing looking for a, a mock identity or what, what did he call it again? Um, <laughs> uh, it's not mock origins, mock belonging. Mock belonging, right. Uh, well, it was kind of because the U.S. national team, I've always, I mean, just because Major League Soccer at the time and the U.S. wasn't quite what it is today, I, I don't know, I've always been fascinated by it national teams the most and uh usa was always uh competitive as in we would always make it into things but never could win anything so i actually kind of like the underdog side of teams like iceland and new zealand because i mean back if, i mean if you want to talk 10 years ago iceland was like basically nobody and and now they're like a pretty they're a reasonably you know competitive team and nationally and same with New Zealand and so I think I kind of like that like underdog I, I was looking for a bit of a a bit more uh, exciting identity I guess through at least through soccer with liking those teams right because then, then I had a right to if I said I was from those places it was <laughs> I had a right to support them you know? so, <laughs> so you're faking being from Iceland like, yeah yeah and but but your your support for Iceland was sincere. Right, yeah, So exactly, you're a yeah. phony Icelandic person, but your support was sincere. Right, Okay, yeah, so it yeah. balances out. N yeah, um, yeah. But, but you know, you and I, yeah, we did always take an interest in kind of these smaller clubs. I mean, I remember yeah. being really interested in Scotland because yeah. that's where our ancestors are from, at least you exactly, know, your yeah. ancestors on my side. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, and also I remember being interested in Switzerland. Basically, anybody who seemed small and like they were yeah. likely to get no, beaten, I was makes, really yeah. interesting, interested in them. And I always, you know, I grew up, as I said, I was in university in the mid-1980s, and um, my boyfriend at the University of Georgia at the time was a soccer player. He played soccer mm -hmm. at his high school and then went on to play, um, you know, with a sort of intramural team at UGA. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it was important to me at that time. I did hear about these terrible things that happened mm -hmm. at soccer games in Europe and South America. Mm -hmm. But I think because I had a soft spot for these small clubs, I, I thought, and this is wrong, I thought that the smaller clubs, um, the lower division teams, did not have this kind of violence or tragedy mm -hmm. happen at their games. And so, you know, getting into what I would say are the tragedies that Nick Hornby uses to punctuate um, fever pitch. I think it's a pretty mm -hmm. good way to put it. I mean, as you yeah, move forward, yeah. he notes each one of these tragedies. And I want to point out, it is astonishing in 2020 to look at the numbers of the dead in some of these incidents. If this were happening today, we would be horrified. It would be everything that anybody was talking about on Facebook. It would be unthinkable. People would be marching in the streets, mm -hmm. demanding change. <laughs> right, but something yeah. that that Hornby points out, which is just striking. It's just so, I mean, profoundly keen, just a very keen, sharp observation. He points out that often when these tragedies happened, that team would be playing an away game one week later, and he mm -hmm. would be at this away game, and everybody is just going on about their business, acting like these tragedies are normal. So Charlie and I were talking a little bit about some of those that Hornby writes about, and I jotted down kind of a timeline of some of them, and um, to the bit about uh, smaller clubs not experiencing these tragedies, that's not really true because there's Ibrox. He mentions Ibrox a couple of times in Fever yeah. Pitch. Charlie, what can you tell us about Ibrox? Well, with Ibrox, and I mean, I guess they're not necessarily the uh, smallest teams because it's just that they're in the Scottish League, which internationally isn't as well known as the English League. But I mean, there are still big teams because it was the uh, well. We'll start with the first. The first disaster at Ibrox was uh, in 1902, and that was actually a, a international match between Scotland versus England, and it was a one-to-one -one draw. But the uh, stadium was built of wooden planks that gave way under about 20,000 spectators and 25 died and hundreds were injured. It was from about 40 feet up. And I mean, that was in 1902. So you almost, you know, you wonder how well a stadium could have been built. But, um, but again, uh, in Ibrox in, uh, 1971, 66 people actually died. And that was at a match between, uh, the Celtics and, uh, Rangers. 66 people died. Yeah. At and a match. How yes. do they think that happened? Is this the stairwell? Yes, that's exactly what happened. So um, basically it was, uh, I don't quite remember who was leading, but it was people were exiting the stadium and at least what they've blamed it on in the past, although uh, it might not necessarily be true, is that people trying to return to the game after a goal was scored 
uh, caused a collapse in a stairwell. And 66 people died, and this just this blows my mind. That's mm -hmm. crazy to me. Um, and Hornby mentions that, but probably the one that he talks about the most, that really probably affected him the most personally, was Haysel, right? Yeah. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about what was going on with Nick Hornby at the time. He was a teacher, and at that time he was teaching... Uh, some Italians, and I believe that they were grad students, maybe they may have been undergrads, mm -hmm. but he was teaching them, and English, this right? big he was teaching them English, and <laughs> this big match was coming up in where is Hazel located? Belgium? Belgium, yeah, Hazel okay. Stadium. Hazel Stadium, Hazel Stadium in Brussels, a big match between Juventus and Liverpool. And Liverpool. Yeah, and it was a, um, if I remember right, it was a. Uh, a final. A, uh, it was a cup final. Yeah, it was a cup final. It's a yeah. cup final. So he has promised these um, Italian students that they're going to go in, I believe it was on a Saturday afternoon, they're going to be allowed to go into the school building and sit down and watch this match together. And he's going to um, basically announce the match in English along with uh, the announcers on the TV, and they're going to discuss things in English. And so he notices um, when they're inside and they have the TV on that it's taking forever for the game to start. He's got the volume turned down um, so he can't hear what's going on. And I think at one point one of his students finally says something like, why are there stretchers or, mm -hmm. you know, there's an ambulance or something. And he turned the volume on and he just felt sick. He was just crushed because um, there had been a, there had been a riot. And it wasn't after the game, which is when we think about these riots happening, mm -hmm. we always think, oh, you know, it was after the game because somebody was ticked off because they didn't win. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it was before the game. And earlier in the book, he talks about this sort of tradition in the English stadiums where um, opposing fans, opposing groups of fans, they would run at each other. And they were just running. And, and back in England, they were used to people getting out of the way or trying to get out of the way. Now, clearly there had been mm. some tragedies in England, so it didn't always work. But at Haysel, his theory is that people were trying to sort of run at their opposition in the stands and frighten them, intimidate them, probably get into fights. Um, but it had a much worse outcome. So Charlie, tell us a little bit about why the outcome at Haysel was so bad. Um, and how many people died? Let's see, so uh, 39 people died, and it was after a, um, as people were, I mean, basically, yeah, running from these other fans, uh, they were near, like, the corner flag of the field on a terrace, but pushing, everybody pushing forward caused a wall to collapse, and so people were literally just uh, falling and getting trampled, um, and that... Led, that led to UEFA banning all English clubs from European competition, actually, which was, I mean... Indefinitely, right? Indefinitely, yeah. And I, I don't actually remember how long that lasted. Uh, not too many years, because they were back in uh, Europe within the 80s. But um, it, uh, I think it was actually a big deal, though, because uh, this was in 1985. And so, you know, 39 people die in that, and they get banned from European competition. Well, also in 1985... We were talking about these smaller division teams. Uh, 
Bradford City won the third division title. And in the celebration, a, a loose cigarette fell under the uh, stadium and it was built out of wood and asbestos, so it quickly engulfed in flames. And since the back exits were locked uh, to prevent people from coming into the stadium that didn't pay and stuff, uh, people weren't able to get out and 56 people died. And so the combination of those uh, led to legislation to make uh, stadiums more safe. And it was important in starting that. I mean, it still took uh, it still took into the 90s for stuff to really get uh, right. legitimized. But. I think there was a commission after Haysaw. I want to say it was the Taylor Commission. I think it was named after um, you know an official and Taylor Report. Yes, Taylor, that was at, Taylor Report. that was actually after uh, at Hillsborough. That was after Hillsborough. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's another, in Yeah, right. There's another. Tragedy that's in 1989. Tell yeah. us about Hillsborough. How many deaths and what happened as a result? So Hillsborough uh, uh, in 1989 was another... It was an FA Cup semifinal, actually, between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. And pretty much, um, I believe there were already fans in the stadium and about 5,000 more fans were attempting to enter. And so police decided to open up... Uh, a set of gates, but they didn't have turnstiles, so they couldn't control the how quickly people were moving in. Right. And so they basically were all leading into these pens because these stadiums used to have uh, standing area cages, basically. Right. That, so, uh, I mean, presumably they were cheaper seats, but they were also uh, kind of more fun seats. I think for, you know, young adults and teens, it was maybe cooler to be in these sections. But anyways... It was already filled with people, and now there's, you know, a flood of people trying to get in, and it resulted in 96 people dying and 766 being injured. And as a result, they made, yeah, what you were talking about, the Taylor Report, which uh, it didn't force, it just recommended, but uh, that all the fences be removed and stadiums become completely uh, seating only, and that is eventually what... Uh, happened at least in Europe. Right. So they didn't have these ends of the field where um, up at the stands there were there were no seats and you stood. You yeah. stood in those areas. It was the people yeah. standing and it, and it would literally have tended a, to sort of charge. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. And you're literally behind like a fence that you may you know see on like a you know a school field or something like that. Right. Type of fence. He writes about this a little bit. Um, some of the changes he says. Um, if going to the ground was all glory and raw power, standing inside it and getting back to the station afterwards was less invigorating. Violence inside the grounds has all but disappeared now for a variety of reasons. Fans are separated properly. Back then, if you fancied your chances in the opposition end, you could just walk through the turnstiles. Away fans are usually kept back after games until the stadium has cleared, and the policing is a lot more sophisticated and so on. For the first half of the 70s, however, there was a fight at every single Arsenal game I attended. Wow. At, yeah, really. <laughs> at Highbury, that's where Arsenal, that's Arsenal's home field, yeah, yeah. home at pitch, the time, yeah. right? They mostly that's took totally. place on the clock end where the opposition's fans stood. Usually they were brief flurries. Arsenal fans charging into the enemy, the enemy scattering, the police taking control. These were ritualistic charges. The violence usually contained in the movement itself rather than in fist and boots. It was this so-called running that caused the Haysal tragedy rather than any real physical attack. 
But occasionally, particularly against West Ham, Tottenham, Chelsea, or Manchester United, the trouble was just as likely to be at the North Bank into the ground where the noise comes from. When away fans could amass sufficient numbers, they would attempt to seize the home fans' territory as if it were an island of strategic military importance. Now, speaking of military importance, you told me something that blew my mind earlier. Um, It had a much higher death toll. Talk to me about El Salvador. Yeah, so there's a... It's worth noting that, I mean, clearly England... Uh, had its issues, you know, if Europe, you know, needed to ban their teams and fans, but there were plenty of other places that, you know, this type of stuff was happening, and yeah, there's, um, uh, so in El Salvador and Honduras, uh, during the World Cup in Mexico, um, and, or at least in 1969, uh, El Salvador played Honduras, and I guess there's a discrepancy over, uh, a goal that, made the score 3-2 with El Salvador winning rather than a tie with Honduras. And uh, Salvadorians began, uh, certain groups of them anyways, attacking uh, Hondurans. Well, no, actually it was Salvadorians within Honduras started getting attacked. Right, by uh, by their Honduran neighbors. Right, and so then the Salvadorian government uh, launched an... A military attack resulting in a war. I think it lasted. A war. A soccer match actually resulted, resulted in, a in a war in Central yeah. America. I How will many say it people only, died at the soccer match? Um, it actually, I, we don't know how many died as a result because what you have to remember what's also even crazier about this is that the match was actually in Mexico. Yeah, so, so it wasn't just, in either hometown. No, so these were just fans watching it on TV reacting. And, uh, um, the war only, I think it lasted, I don't have a number here, but it was, it was only like two or three weeks. But I mean, either way, uh, a violent eruption from just a soccer game. Wow. And then uh, one more crazy one from South America, just okay. while we're doing this, was uh, Peru and Argentina, who that's a, a decent rivalry. They're kind of all rivals in South America, though. But um, uh, they had a game in 1964 in Lima, and at the last minute... Uh, a Peruvian goal was ruled by the referee as not a goal, and it was for an Olympic qualifier. And the decision sparked rioting within the stadium, and 318 people were killed and 500 were injured. And uh, wow. Lima was under martial law for the next 30 days. Lima so. was under martial law for the next 30 days. Yeah. How many people were killed? <laughs> uh, 318. 318 people killed yeah. at the soccer match. So... You know, this this is something people felt very passionately about, and apparently the way that the stadiums were built didn't help. Also, you know, I think Hornby does a great job of pointing out it wasn't just the way the stadiums was, were built. It's the fact that huge numbers mm-hmm. of people were attending these yeah. matches. He talks about a match where there were 65,000 people. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. the size of a town. That's actually, yeah. you know three times as big as the largest town close to where I grew up. Yeah. It's, that's a lot of people. So you'd have what amounted to, you know, a, a small city's population inside these stadiums. And also, the policing at that point was not that sophisticated, so there wasn't a lot of separating of fans. Yeah. Nowadays, of course, you go to this match, you're separated out, and when you leave, your path is a very strict path out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've avoided a lot of this in yeah. recent years. One more of these, and because uh, you were mentioning uh, just the sheer amount of people that were in it, and 
1946, uh, Bolton played Stoke City in England, and uh, there were 65,000 people already packed into the stadium, which was already at capacity. But of course, capacity, the numbers were looser because it was standing room, so you couldn't exactly right. count. And, and there were another 20,000 people outside trying to force their way in. Wow. And it resulted in people dying from asphyxiation, from purely just being pressed up against each other in the walls. 500 plus people were injured. 33 died, and the match started 26 laters with bodies literally still on the field. The and match started with bodies on the field. Yeah, of those people that had died from asphyxiation. So it's clearly, there is definitely an amount of, uh, I mean, it is, it is a physical thing coming down to the numbers of people, but like with that, with the game restarting like that, or, or what I was just talking about in South America, where they were rioting in the stadium, there clearly is a, a, a passion behind it that's not just like people being in the wrong place. There is like uh, people fire, you know, fired up about this stuff. And I think that um, that was, I mean, that comes from other people being like him looking for uh, something to represent themselves. Of course, he never became violent about it or anything, but... No, but he did... He, he was clobbered, though. Yeah, he He yeah. definitely got smacked around after a game yeah, in inner-city London. Yeah. You know, I guess the big irony there is he was pretending to be from inner-city London, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, so but in he, a way, he got what was coming to that, him. In a way, he did. He yeah. went to an Arsenal match, and I forget which of the clubs they were playing, but yeah, you know, it was one of the inner-city clubs, and... Um, a couple of kids chased him down and smacked him around, and yeah. and you know it was clearly not a good experience. Yeah. Um, so, just to sort of wrap this up, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to talk a little bit how about how when he was older, um, he was invited by his uncle um, to go with him and his nephew, his thirteen-year-old nephew to see an Arsenal game because his nephew has become a big Arsenal fan at this point. And he, he writes, it was strange watching Michael, a younger version of myself, agonizing for his team as they went three to zero down and huffed their way back into the game. Arsenal lost three to two without ever really suggesting that they would get so much as a point. I could see the distraction in his face and began to understand how football could mean so much to boys of that age. What else can we lose ourselves in when books have started to become hard work and before girls have revealed themselves to be the focus that I had now discovered they were? As I sat there, I knew it was all over for me, the Highbury scene. I didn't need it anymore. And of course it was sad, because these six or seven years have been very important to me, had saved my life in several ways, but it was time to move on to fulfill my academic and romantic potential, to leave football to those with less sophisticated or less developed taste. Maybe Michael would take over for a few years before passing it all on to someone else. It was nice to think that it wouldn't disappear from the family altogether. And maybe one day I would come back with my own boy. Of course he does go to Arsenal games in the future, but yeah. there's a there's a brief period in there before that happens when he's at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And he really enjoys supporting the Cambridge team because he wasn't as emotionally invested in it. There was a lot of fun. And maybe because nobody really expected that much of Cambridge. And, you know, Charlie, what would you say about, you know, when there's less expectation, how that affects your enjoyment of something? Yeah, I think it definitely can uh, be 
positive when there's less invested in it because then you can kind of just enjoy the uh uh the game itself i mean i mean it loses a little something too because i mean i mean like he was describing his younger nephew and i was even saying at the beginning how you care about a team as a kid is like pretty intense and like passionately but yeah i think once you're older uh I don't know, as you're a kid, you kind of just feel things more. As you're older, you, I guess, start to feel a need to, like, act on your feelings. Right. And, uh, and that can leave you, you know, high and dry. If, if, <laughs> if your team has a terrible loss and now you just feel depressed, well, like, you still have to go to work and stuff. You can't just play with your toys to feel better or whatever. And so, uh, or, or, you know, you, it could be the opposite way if something's wrong in your life and then you watch a game and it just makes you feel even worse. So... <laughs> <laughs> like so I definitely can see how it it you know you need the balance of not being uh, overly invested in it but I mean still enough I mean cuz definitely the competition makes it fun I mean you know it's it's fun to see uh, a a hard fought win so right um so soccer remains a part of his life um later on he plays in a little local team that you know some of his friends and he put together Um, and I'm sitting here I'm looking at your leg healing and I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if there might be some soccer in your future yeah I definitely hope so I mean I've been wanting to uh so really this is an old leg injury and I wanted to I played in high school but I stopped because because I was bored of it I mean like he got bored of it as a fan and uh but now I definitely like, I mean, like, I, I practice by myself and stuff. I was hoping to get to play again sooner, but uh, it looks like because of my leg, it'll take a little longer. But I think there, there will be a time that um, I'll play soccer again. And uh, What do you think about fever pitch overall? Um, I liked it. I mean, I'll say that I, I've always been invested in soccer a little more as a player than as a fan, but... Uh, but definitely as a fan too, so I I could relate to it. And then, uh, and with the whole, I mean, so he, I mean, I guess there were moments he followed the crowd and maybe it did him poorly, such as like when he got, you know, jumped or whatever, when he went to the one Arsenal game. But mostly, uh, mostly I think it benefited him uh, following the crowd and giving him this like thing to follow, having Arsenal to be passionate about and uh, used to reflect on his own life. But but he saw around him other times where that didn't work out. And, you know, luckily, I mean, honestly, it's maybe good that he wasn't edgy enough or hard enough to be, uh, you know, one of the hooligans or whatever. Right. And, you yeah. know, would have either gotten himself in trouble or, or maybe hurt somebody or all these other times where people were, you know, in these sections of stadiums or whatnot and got injured because they were following the crowd. Right. Exactly. So maybe there's an argument for following the crowd, but, but there's also, you know, certainly think about what you're doing, (laughs) right? Stop for a moment and think about what you're doing. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been Life Hacks from Dead People. We talked about Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch. It's a marvelous book. Please check it out.